This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is my first in-person Dharma Talk. My first trip. And I really thought, oh, I'll go in May. Be nice and cool compared to July when I usually come. But you know, you're always surprised. And I, I, um, I really love being able to be here for uh, Zenki's memorial. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Blanche was a dear friend, and I took care of her the last few years of her life. And and Austin Zen Center meant a lot to Blanche, and I think she would be so happy and proud of all that is happening here. So thank you for keeping her practice alive, our practice alive. And I'm gonna start actually with a poem that I read at her memorial service from Rumi, it's called Gone to the Unseen. At last you have departed and gone to the unseen. What marvelous route did you take from this world? Beating your wings and feathers, you broke free from this cage. Rising up to the sky, you attained the world of the soul. Your prized falcon trapped by an old woman. Then you heard the drummer's call and flew beyond space and time. As a lovesick nightingale, you flew among the owls. Then came the scent of the rose garden and you flew off to meet the rose. The wine of this fleeting world caused your head to ache. And finally you joined the tavern at eternity. Like an arrow, you sped from the bow and went straight for the bullseye of bliss. This phantom world gave you false signs, but you turned from the illusion and journeyed to the land of truth. You are now the sun. What need have you for a crown? You have vanished from this world. What need have you to tie your robe? I've heard that you can barely see your soul, but why look at all? Yours is now the soul of souls. Oh heart, what a wonderful bird you are, seeking divine heights. Flapping your wings, you smash the pointed spears of your enemy. The flowers flee from autumn, but not you. You are a fearless rose that grows amidst the freezing wind. Pouring down like the rain of heaven, you fell upon the rooftop of this world. Then you ran in every direction and escaped through the drain spell. Now the words are over and the pain they bring is gone. Now you have gone to rest in the arms of the beloved. In case any of you don't know, I work as a hospice chaplain. Before I came to Zen, I came to Zen because most of my friends had died. I survived the 70s and 80s as a gay guy and sat at thousands and thousands of bedsides as people during their last breath. I know a little something about grief. Grief is what brought me to practice. And there's a couple of things that I, um, I'm hoping that I can share with you today at this talk, but then also that we can continue in our discussions later in the afternoon. And I wanna first say that 
death isn't the only transition that brings grief. The end of relationships, the loss of our animal companions, the loss of jobs, great teachers moving, anything that is a transition, even our children growing up, getting older, and we watch them no longer be infants or toddlers or babies, and now they're almost adults, or maybe they are adults. And as sweet as that is, it's also painful, right? Like there's grief there. And I think that particularly in the United States, we have this way of kind of pretending that grief is at once completely normal, but only if we deal with it in private and only if it lasts for X amount of time, right? Like most of our emotions, grief is socialized into us and we're expected to respond in appropriate ways that actually have nothing to do with grief or our own healing. It's some story that got picked up and then handed down through generations to protect I don't know, patriarchy, <laughs> white supremacy culture, power structures, corporate greed. We got to get back to work. But grief doesn't really give a shit about our timeline. Grief doesn't care that I have to go to work. And so how do we hold it, right? How do we honor and respect ourselves? And yet, you know, the lights got to stay on, the bills got to get paid. Children got to be fed. I've got to get fed. And so I think the secret is in our practice. Our practice gives us great opportunity to sit in discomfort and to sit with whatever state of being we happen to be in, with whatever thoughts arise in our mind. We're encouraged to let them arise and pass away of their own accord. We don't have to follow them. It's often said in Zen that enlightenment is an appropriate response. And so our practice helps us figure out like how can I get closer and closer and closer to an appropriate response? And I titled this talk, Not Always So, because the truth is, is that my appropriate response in this moment is gonna be different than my appropriate response in the next moment. Like some days the appropriate response is to fall apart and gnash my teeth and rend my clothes and, and just really go there with all of the gusto that my drag queen heart likes to do with big emotions. I love a good drama fit, right? And sometimes that's an appropriate response. Other times the appropriate response is to just tell my friend, I'm really sad, I'm really struggling. Can you help me make dinner? Other times it's to pull out the pictures and the memories and remind ourselves of the love and the joy. I think the other really interesting thing about American culture, we want a quick answer and an easy answer. The number of people, when I sit down with them and we start talking about grief, who just say, tell me how to do it. Just tell me what I need to do and I can get on my way. And I'm like, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. 
Because the other secret is what I do for my grief is not going to be what you do for your grief. How you handle transitions are not going to be how Mako handles transitions. Her appropriate response is going to be different than your appropriate response. So Suzuki Rishi said, the secret to Zen is two words. Not always so. And I love that phrase. Because it gives me permission to not be so convinced. The way I handled Blanche's death is different than the way I handled my partner's death. It's different than the way I handled her husband's death. I was very close to both of them. I was at Tassajara when Lou died and it was fully expected he had been sick. And the last time I saw him was right around Christmas time. And at the end of our conversation, I said, am I gonna see you again? And he said, probably not. And I said, all right, I hope you know how much I love you and I'm gonna miss you. And he said, I love you. Never saw him again. I almost didn't even get to go to his funeral because I was at Tassajara. I cheated. I made a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. You know, and interesting things happen in grief, right? Working in hospice, it's very funny how when someone dies, all of a sudden there's this fluster of activity. Everybody gets really busy. And my job is to go in and say, wait, stop. They're not going to get any more dead. Let this register. Because when I'm trying to find the appropriate response, the best thing I can do is to pause. To check into my body. Settle in. Because the thing about appropriate response, the thing about our practice is that it speaks very quietly. And if there's a lot of commotion, we're gonna miss it. Or we're gonna get the wrong thing. But if we can settle in, let ourselves have the experience we're having while we're having it, Whatever it is, we can hear our practice. What's my practice asking of me? What does it mean to be me in this moment? Right now, check in with yourself. Take a moment to close your eyes. Ask yourself like for me to have the experience I'm having? Can I hear that quiet voice of practice? It calls me to my next breath and welcomes me into my next moment. So um, one of my favorite Buddhist poets who says he's not Buddhist, W.S. Merwin, it's this really beautiful day, a uh, beautiful poem. 
I believe in the ordinary day that is here at this moment and is me. I do not see it going its own way, but I never saw how it came to me. It extends beyond whatever I may think I know and all that is real to me. It is the present that it bears away. Where has it gone when it has gone from me? There's no place I know outside today, except for the unknown all around me. The only presence that appears to stay. Everything that I call mine is lent me, even the way that I believe the day, for as long as it is here and is me. Practice provides us with these tools to sit down, just notice and pay attention to our life. Not my life as I want it to be, not my life as I'm told by others it's supposed to be, not my life as anybody expects it to be. What is my life right now? We sit on our cushion and we sit and we face the wall and we project all of this stuff on it. And then we just watch it go. I used to go to my teacher all the time and go, I'm struggling with my depression or I'm struggling with my anxiety. Or, you know, I'm feeling sick this week and I'm really struggling because I don't want to feel sick. When I was at Tassajara during practice periods, I was sick a lot. And I just really hated being sick there. And I would go and say, I just, I'm struggling so much. And my teacher would just be like, stop struggling. You don't have to fight yourself. And that's true for me. I spent most of my life in opposition to my own self, to what was going on in my body and in my life. all of the places that we show up in our life. And then we'd notice, like, oh, wait, I'm actually fighting my own self here. There doesn't have to be a fight. It's amazing what happens when I stop fighting my depression, because I really expected that meant that I was going to wallow in bed and, you know, woes me and all of that stuff. But really what happens is, is I end up going, okay, I'm depressed. So what? I still got to go to work. I still have to do this thing. But as long as I'm struggling with it, as long as I'm wrestling with it, as long as I'm thinking in opposition to it, that's going to take up so much more energy than if I just went, oh, yeah, I'm depressed today. Maybe I should call a friend. Or answer the phone when my friends call me. Maybe I can just show up for myself. Because everything that I think of as me is lent to me. It's not permanent. My depression comes and goes. Sometimes it stays for a while, sometimes for an hour, other times for a month. Anxiety is the same way for me. 
So there's no timeline to this thing we call grief. My partner died over 30 years ago. There are days I still feel like it was yesterday. And then there are days when it's so far removed from my experience that I feel like, did I forget? The other secret is, is to stop trying to think that we can go back to something called normal. I am now uh, 56. Yeah, 56. <laughs> and um, I've never met anyone who was normal. And I know lots of people. I think what we need to do is figure out what's the new normal. So as we move out of this two and a half years of pandemic, and we start to think about what's next, what's the new normal? I certainly don't want to go back to how things were. As a queer person with a disability, I certainly don't want to go back to the way things were. So what's the new normal? You know, we now have Zoom and, and the opportunity to, to allow people access who, for whatever reason, were unable to attend and join us in person before. That's an amazing gift. And if we hold on to some unuseful idea of whatever normal is, we, we miss the opportunity for the joy that is coming up next, around that next corner. When we don't hold on to our thoughts and we allow them to arise and pass away, the next thought may be liberation. Because that's the amazing thing, right? Like we're already liberated. We already have everything we need. We just have to practice it. And how do we practice it? We sit down on our cushion regularly or in a chair or lay in our bed. And we pay attention to what's happening. What's it like to be me having this experience? Underneath my opinions, underneath my stories, underneath my ideas, underneath all of the socializations. And, you know, in Zen, there's no steps and stages, but what I do know is that if we do that consistently and regularly, it starts to become easier to do that. So I think that's it for me. And then it's supposed to stop. Yeah. You have questions then? Yeah. Okay. So it's about 11, 1047. So we have time for questions. And hopefully, if there's questions from online, maybe somebody can keep track of that. And I see Macon has one. Unmute yourself. I just have a clarification. At the beginning of your talk, you said this was your first Dharma talk in person since the pandemic. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Hello. 
Thank you. Remind me your name. I'm David. Hi, David. Thank you for your talk. So I have uh, some kind of chunks of ideas, and I'm wondering how they fit within the framework of, of grief. And maybe you can talk a little bit about it. So one is the idea that past is delusion. I'm sorry, the path of delusion? Past. Past delusion. Uh-huh. Reminiscence and rumination. How do those fit within the framework of grief? It sounds like a quiz, but I don't mean it like that. <laughs> no, I, I think they're appropriate questions. Like, I think that it's one of those, like, especially rumination. I think it's really easy because we, and, and rumination often leads us to the trap of delusion, right? Because we keep chewing on this one thought. And so the question becomes the rumination, is it, is it caused by an unsettledness in myself? Is it caused by some part of my mental health that isn't being properly treated in the moment, right? Because there are certain ways in which my mental health and anxiety particularly will go on these ruminations and I get into this sort of pattern. And, and, and that requires treatment that's not about practice, right? Like it's really important that we don't, we don't mistake practice for mental health care. They're two separate things. And I encourage you that if you have uh, difficulty with that, that you seek professional help. I do. <laughs> but if, it's, if it is just my mind, right? Like my mind is just going over and over on, on some thought that I can't seem to let go of, it often means that I somehow haven't figured out and I, I haven't figured out what it is that that thought is trying to tell me, right? And so my response often is to go to my body. Where do I feel that thought? Because our minds are not separate from our bodies. So any thought I have is going to be located in my body. So where do I feel it? And what are the sensations associated with it? Is it sharp, dull, throbbing? steady like what is it really and start to really look at it from that side and if you start to see it from that side you might be able to hear it a little more clearly so that then it can be on its way so rumination what was the other reminiscence memories are wonderful like i love to reminisce don't get trapped there and don't think that they're any more real than what I'm feeling or thinking or seeing right now. Because right now is a memory too. So, but you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of trying to control our experiences. So all of those things are beneficial and not beneficial. So, it's about getting trapped by them or giving them more authority than they actually need or require. 
And so if I continually return to my experience, and if I'm having problems understanding what my experience is, I can go to my body and start to think about, well, how do I feel this in my body? What's the nature of it physically, which often gives me the information I need about what's it like in other words. Did that help? Thank you so much. Um, so I first, I just, I want to thank you for the work that you did in hospitals for the men. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, so I really resonated with this about like, stop fighting yourself. And I mean, so I don't know. I have like two voices in my head. One is like, this is so lame what you're going through, but also it's like really poignant, I guess. I don't know. So like I'm a resident here and I really love this space. And I feel like a real safety and refuge and a sense of being supported. And I just like really am struggling with waking up in the morning so early. And I just feel so tired when Friday comes and like just like the whole body hurts. And I just like I just can't like reconcile that with living here, like feeling so bad. And so I feel like, okay, well, maybe I should just leave so I don't have to wake up so early in the morning and feel terrible and then I guess I would just like thinking I hear about Tassahara and I hear about how like Suzuki Roshi like ate brown rice even though he his body didn't process it well and Rabbi Anderson wrote that like he thinks that like might have even killed him that he was eating the brown rice but he refused <laughs> to eat the white rice and I don't know. I was just lying in bed and, and I was like, wow, is it like the highest form of practice is this kind of personal torture that people are putting <laughs> themselves through? <laughs> I just really have a hard time like being part of that because I feel like I feel like I want to be in balance in my life and treat my body with kindness. And I hear so many stories about people being like, so exhausted and beaten through this practice and it's just i don't know it's confusing for me and it's hard to feel like i can commit when i see that being a resident is exhausting it just is because even when you're not there's not a service or there's not zazen or there's not you're still holding space here right so in some ways you're never not on, right? And so, um, so being a resident is, I did it for almost 12 years. And I think also looking at who's making me feel guilty. Who's making me think that I have to do more than my best. Who implanted that story for me? Because Suzuki Roshi made choices that were right for Suzuki Roshi doesn't mean they're right for me. Reb Anderson made choices for Reb Anderson doesn't mean they're right for me. When I came to Zen Center, I was 40 years old, disabled, 
and had a full life experience. I wasn't 19. A lot of things that are expected are expected of 19-year-olds. So it took me a long time to figure out that I can make boundaries and have boundaries and and make and negotiate with the leadership team and practice committee and because guilt's not going to help and guilt nobody is trying to make you feel nobody wants you to torture yourself like zen is not about torturing yourself it's why we say if you can't sit on a cushion sit in a chair if you can't sit in a chair lay down like don't torture yourself because that's not actually going to get us anywhere because you can't if my body is being tortured if my heart is being tortured i can't connect to myself but culturally we're trained to think oh whatever you know they they say oh follow the schedule completely and i say yeah follow the schedule completely but if you can't talk to people Say, this is what I can do. And okay. And hopefully you can negotiate that. Um, but also recognize that being in residence in a temple is not easy. And it's not right for everybody. And it may, it may be that this is not right for you. Doesn't mean you don't practice hard enough. Doesn't mean you're not good enough. Doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means it's not right for you. And that's okay. So you just come on, you know, according to your schedule and according to what your body can do. But this idea that, you know, now if I'm 19 and I'm trying to find my place in the world, you know, I might push myself a little harder than I did at 40 or 50, right? Because I don't really know what my body can do. I don't really know what my energy levels are. But I can tell you that when I moved in at 40, I knew. <laughs> so don't feel guilty. Do the best you can. If, you, if the best you can is different than what's being asked of you, then negotiate that and talk about that. But also think about maybe it's not the right place for you. Maybe the right place for you is to live outside and come every day and be committed to being on the dawn rail and supporting in all of those ways. Great. That's just as valid. That's just as deep. That's just as important. The great thing about Zen is there's not steps and stages here. No one is more awake than anyone else. The great thing about these talks are you really learn that my lips may be moving, but we're all giving the talk. It's just my lips are the ones that happen to be moving. And I like to remind people, I'm just a dude. I, you know, have lots of tattoos. I swear more than a little bit. You know, I woke up this morning and had coffee and shaved my face and did the things just like everybody else did. 
they just gave me a seat that's a little higher up because it's easier to see everybody's face. That's all. And I think they gave me this really big robe so that I sweat a lot more. <laughs> it's time for one more. Pat, thank you. I do know your name. How could I not know your name? <laughs> We've met like a dozen times, I think. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I heard something uh, a while back. Maybe I heard it at Branching Streams. I'm not sure. Somebody said, talking about grief, that, um, and, and uh, amazing, this is kind of a new thought to me, but it really resonated that grief never goes away or gets smaller. No. It's just the life. You know, sort of makes it look smaller. Maybe our culture makes us think it should get smaller. Uh, Seem like your time is kind of. We never escape it. And that's why, when, like, every time that we lose something or there's another transition, like, it feels like all of our old grief comes back. It's not that it came back, it's just that, okay, this gets added to the pile. And so the pile's a little bigger. And so we're paying attention to all of it now. And that's it. No, it doesn't. I've never known it to go away. And there's a really great scene in Torch Song Trilogy where Harvey Firestein is talking to his mother about, so they had a big fight at the cemetery because uh, the mother was doing Kaddish for the, her husband who had died. And Harvey Firestein was doing Kaddish for his partner who had died. And the mom got upset. They had a big fight. And then they, but they got back to Harvey Firestein's house and they had a conversation. And in that conversation, they were talking about grief. And Harvey Firestein's mother, Harvey Firestein asked his mother, does it ever get easier? And she said, not really. It's a bit like wearing a ring. You always know it's there and you don't want it to not, to, you don't want to not know it's there because that means you forgot. And I love that thought, right? Like, it, yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it's the grief for, and that's the other thing, right? Like we have this idea that grief for one thing is different than grief for another thing. And they're not. Suffering is suffering. It, it all hurts. And so, um, but we do that to ourselves, right? Like. Even the way we talk, I have to get over this. The reason I came to Buddhism in the first place was I had done all the things that they told me I was supposed to do to get over grief. Therapy, self-help groups, you know, those uh, uh, gathering things and, you know, men's drum circles and woo-woo crystal healers and the whole thing, right? Like I did everything. And I was miserable and going crazy. And I didn't know how to do, deal with it. And a friend and I said, well, we live in San Francisco. Let's, there might be a spiritual solution. So we started hunting around for spiritual things. Ended up in the basement of a church, where the, or a, a basement of an apartment building where this guy had a small sitting group. And he said at the end, there was like a, 30 second talk, really. It was just a very short talk. But he said, nothing is broken. 
and I thought he was completely off base and didn't know shit. And I was going to argue with him. So I came back a few times to, to get the facts I needed to argue with him and tell him how screwed up he was. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure out how screwed up he is. <laughs> what I've come to understand is nothing is broken. Given the causes and conditions of my life, how could it be any anything else? You can't lose thousands of friends and loved ones and friends of friends and escape unscathed. We've lost a million people in the United States. Hundreds of thousands more are permanently disabled. How can we, how can it be otherwise? If we look at all the causes and conditions that bring us to this moment, how could it be otherwise? And then we let go of the idea that this loss is bigger than this loss. This transition is more important than this transition. A great teacher is moving away, but at least, you know, it's not the same as when my boyfriend died. I don't know about you, but in some ways, I love my teacher way more than I love my boyfriend. He was definitely more helpful. But, you know, I mean, but we do this to ourselves, right? Like we we have these ideas about it. And so escaping from the clutches of our ideas to just sink into what's it like to be me. Thank you all very much for your attention and sharing the Dharma with me.